This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. It's a nervous wait for homeowners who'll find out today if the Reserve Bank will deliver another interest rate rise before Christmas, making it eight in a row. Even before any announcement, the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says he knows these are harsh times for people who are having to make higher mortgage repayments on top of climbing grocery and energy bills. Despite that, economists are expecting that families will still splurge this Christmas. John Daly prepared this report. On a cafe strip in East Perth, passers-by are bracing for an unwelcome gift from the Reserve Bank, a possible pre-Christmas interest rate hike. Uh, it's not nice things. We're not a nice Christmas gift for a lot of owners and like a potential owner, a potential buyer, I think it would be more difficult for me to buy a nice property. I'm kind of expecting it. Um, not the best news before Christmas. Luckily, I've done all my Christmas shopping, so uh, I've probably been in the new year will be more interesting to me if they keep rising, but I'm kind of expecting a rise. Consecutive rate rises since May have taken official interest rates from the record low of 0.1% to the current 2.85%. Baron Joey Chief Economist Joe Masters expects the RBA will lift rates by another 25 basis points today, with more to come when the board resumes its meetings next year. We expect that there will be some further rate hikes early in 2023, both in February and March, to take the cash rate to 3.6%. By February, the Reserve Bank Board will be armed with the inflation data from the December quarter, in which it hopes Australia's inflation will have peaked at 8%. Joe Masters says the rate hikes are already weighing heavily on consumer sentiment. To be honest, it's still sitting around levels that we would typically see in a recession. But she doesn't think it's going to dampen Christmas spending too much. Right across the country, I'm hearing that Australians are looking forward to, hopefully, a Christmas period that is not disrupted by COVID or by weather events. And they'll be digging into their savings in order to do that. Right. So one last splurge before the purse strings have to be tightened. That's exactly right. The prediction rings true on the cafe strip in East Perth. Rising interest rates, rising cost of living. Are there having to be any Christmas cutbacks this year? Not really cutting back, but just a bit mindful of overall spending for the holiday period. Not really. We run a fairly tight ship anyway. We're not huge spenders. We've got two kids, so we know to, we, we know we have a budget and we stick to that. For Christmas, are you, still, are you going to be spending as much as ever? More, because I'm going away, but I've been planning for that for the last year. In a statement, the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says while he doesn't second-guess the Reserve Bank, it's already flagged further rate rises, and he knows that Australians are facing what he calls harsh and heavy times. He acknowledges that on top of rising grocery and energy bills, the average family is having to find an extra $500 a month for mortgage repayments. As for the broader economy, he's warning that the combination of higher interest rates, natural disasters and global volatility will also weigh on national economic growth. John Daly reporting there. Tomorrow's National Cabinet meeting's been postponed after the Prime Minister tested positive for COVID-19. Anthony Albanese and the Premiers and Chief Ministers were supposed to be thrashing out a plan to tackle rising energy prices, something the federal opposition argues is too pressing a problem to put off. Political reporter Matthew Doran's at Parliament House. Matthew, is time running out for the Prime Minister to come up with a solution before Christmas? 
Well, Sabra, it certainly is the deadline that the government gave itself to have some plan put into the public domain. And after a quick check of the calendar this morning, Sabra, there are only 19 more sleeps until Christmas. So it is certainly looming, although it's also clear that work has been going on behind the scenes to come up with various proposals to tackle surging power prices. It's not as though the entire work of government grinds to a halt just as the Prime Minister joins the many thousands of Australians dealing with an unwelcome pre-Christmas complication in the form of COVID-19. There has already been a fair bit of debate about what form of market intervention is possible and, for that matter, palatable to bring power prices down. And it does seem that a plan to cap coal and gas prices is the preferred option at the moment. That throws up quite a few complications, namely which level of government puts in place the price cap. Matt Keane, the New South Wales Treasurer, has said it would be neater if the Commonwealth did it rather than the states. And conveniently, that also means the Commonwealth absorbs any legal risk that comes about as a consequence. But there's also going to be an issue around compensation here. It's an old saying in federal politics, which you would know well, Sabra, never get in between a premier and a pot of money. And when you're putting caps on state resources, debate about funding to replace lost royalties also comes into play. So there was plenty to discuss at tomorrow's planned National Cabinet meeting. And for that matter, the dinner that the Prime Minister was due to host at the Lodge in Canberra tonight for the premiers and chief ministers. Now all of that needing to be rescheduled. So what's the federal opposition saying about this? Well, Susan Lee, who is the acting opposition leader at the moment, was quick out of the blocks last night to wish Mr Albanese a speedy recovery, but also to question how the decision to postpone the meeting came about, the argument being that power bill relief is needed and needed quickly and that National Cabinet can still meet virtually, as it did through much of 2020 and 2021 as the COVID-19 pandemic took hold. We do have to point out this hasn't been ruled out by the Prime Minister's office as yet. Uh, There were questions put to his staff last night on the matter Shortly after news of his positive test result came through, the Prime Minister's office insisting he will be working away in Kirribilli House in Sydney while he's isolating. Sabra? Political reporter Matthew Doran. Despite our low unemployment rate, nearly half a million Australians don't have a job and helping them find one is big business. The federal government spends $1.5 billion every year on the sector, helping people apply for jobs, complete training and meet obligations set out to keep their income support payments. But there are widespread concerns that the system's not working and a new inquiry is examining if there's a better way. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry. Financial stress creeps into life in all sorts of ways. Therese Edwards tells a story of a mother trying to do her supermarket shop. Her trolley was full of her grocery items. It was her Friday night, late night shopping that she was doing. The woman's parenting payment, an income support payment offered to parents of young children, had been suspended, but she didn't realise until she got to the checkout and her card was declined. Suddenly she was going to have to manage with less food and a weekend of cancelled plans for her and her three-year-old. It was a little mate's fourth birthday party, so she cancelled attending that because she was worried about rationing out the petrol that she had left in the car. Therese Edwards leads the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. She's giving evidence this morning at a new parliamentary inquiry into Australia's employment services system. Today's hearings are looking particularly at Parents Next, a compulsory pre-employment program for parents of young children receiving income support payments. Those who don't meet its requirements can have their payments suspended, which is what happened to the mum Therese spoke of. This mum probably spent four nights with complete distress. 
The Parents' Next program is just one aspect the broad inquiry intends to tackle. It's looking at every angle of Workforce Australia, the $1.5 billion system aimed at helping job seekers find work. Workforce Australia is itself only a few months old. It's the latest in a long line of employment services models. Labor MP Julian Hill is the committee chair. He wants a review of how the system works. One of the criticisms we hear from unemployed people, users of the system, is that too often they've been asked or forced to do things uh, which are not actually preparing them for work or, in the worst case, um, stigmatise people, make them ashamed and, frankly, make them less employable. 74 providers are contracted across the country to run employment services, working with job seekers to help them find work and monitoring their compliance too. They're expected to come under scrutiny. Sally Sinclair from the National Employment Services Association insists they've been playing the role asked of them by government and doing it well. Providers work to policy, program and contracting arrangements that have been specified by the government. And in that context, they've certainly been ticking many of the boxes that have been asked of them. If, however, there are opportunities to strengthen that response through better policy, program and contracting architecture, then we welcome that. The committee's final report is due late next year. Tom Lowry reporting there. The Federal Parliamentary Inquiry into Long COVID's received hundreds of submissions and it says a couple of clear issues are emerging. First just how many Australians have long COVID and how should the condition be defined in this country? As Samantha Donovan reports, people struggling to throw off their debilitating symptoms just won't help. Melbourne woman Rochelle Osborne says she's struggling with long COVID and one of the biggest problems she's faced is getting good medical advice. The first GP I saw just said time would help and then kind of made it seem as if it was more of a psychological thing, which was, was pretty upsetting. So there's got to be more more out there, more resources and more clinics for people to go to. A federal parliamentary committee is holding an inquiry into long COVID in Australia. After taking submissions and holding the first of its public hearings, it's found one of the biggest problems is knowing just how many Australians have the condition. Dr Miranda Smith from the Doherty Institute says much more needs to be done to collate the data. I think it's still quite anecdotal and we don't have a good understanding at a national level, looking at the different populations across the country, how many people are experiencing long COVID, when they were vaccinated and how they've experienced and when they've experienced their initial COVID infection. Would it be difficult though to put all that data together? Some of the data is out there. Um, So in electronic medical records, in PBS prescribing, for example, understanding how many people are prescribed antivirals and then um, go on to experience long COVID. Um, So some of the the data is there and just needs to be brought together. Um, And that's generally a challenge in Australia because we have a lot of the data collected at the jurisdictional level. So each state and territory has their own way of collecting this data and so it can sometimes be tricky to ensure that we end up with large data sets that represent what's going on across 
the whole country. The Parliamentary Committee is finding the lack of a consistent definition of long COVID in Australia is causing problems for patients and doctors. The Long COVID Australia Collaboration is among the groups that have made a submission. Its convener, Professor Andrew Bailey from the University of Sydney, says much more work needs to be done before we have a good understanding of the nature of long COVID. There's not one condition, but a range of things, and we obviously need to get better at treatment, both in terms of exactly what we do for treatment, but in also how we organise care, because this is a problem that is quite large, potentially, and our existing health resources are fairly stretched. So it's probably not going to be sufficient to have specialist clinics in main hospitals. We're going to need something that's actually out there in primary health care. That's Professor Andrew Bailey, the convener of the Long COVID Australia Collaboration. Samantha Donovan reporting. This week marks 30 years since Paul Keating's historic Redfern Address in Sydney's inner city. It was the first time a Prime Minister spoke publicly about the dispossession, violence and prejudice against First Nations Australians. And as we prepare for a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, First Nations leaders are reflecting on the legacy of the Keating Address and how it's influenced the road to possible constitutional recognition. National Indigenous correspondent Carly Williams prepared this report. On a sunny Sydney day in 1992, a crowd of school children, government delegates and local residents gathered in Redfern Park in the inner city. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. The PM stood on stage in front of Aboriginal art murals and delivered what's now considered a landmark speech. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. This Saturday marks 30 years since that less than four minute speech and Indigenous historian and author Dr Jackie Huggins says its importance has grown since then. It's more relevant these days, I think, than it was even back then. Paul Keating was the first Prime Minister, I believe, to make those statements about dispossession and uh, injustice, invasion. And she thinks it's helped pave the way for a referendum on a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament. It speaks to the timing of our nation and the way in which hopefully we've evolved to know a lot more about our history. Hopefully it doesn't take another 30 years to see recognition of our people within the constitution. Wonkamara and Bakanji man and member of the referendum working group, Sean Gordon, says the speech sparked a long list of Australian leaders committing to Indigenous recognition in some form. John Howard, you know, in 2007, um, committed to a referendum on Indigenous recognition. That then went on to Kevin Rudd, to Julia Gillard, to Tony Abbott, to Morrison. A referendum either late next year or early 2024 will ask Australians if we should amend the constitution to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament to advise on policies relating to First Nations people. The Federal Nationals are the first major political party to back the no case, much to Sean Gordon's disappointment. You know, so it's quite frustrating for Indigenous people that 30 years on we're still using the same language that Paul Keating used 30 years ago 
that we're still coming up against the same opposition. Politicians aren't listening to the voices of Indigenous people as we ask for proper and meaningful recognition of our rightful place in the country. But Sean Gordon is hoping 30-odd years later he can soon celebrate the recognition Paul Keating mused about that we won't fire. all those years ago. We will succeed in this decade. Thank you very much for listening to me. Former Prime Minister Paul Keating, Carly Williams, with that report. Russia's fired a barrage of missiles into Ukraine, causing widespread cuts to the power and water supply, hitting homes and killing several people. Moscow says the attacks are revenge for the fatal explosion on two Russian air bases, which it blames on Ukraine. Our reporter, Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop, is in the city of Krivyri in southern Ukraine, which has come under attack. It's become known as Missile Monday. Almost every week for the past two months, a barrage of Russian rockets has hit Ukraine's vital infrastructure. Now millions are again without power, heating or running water. And with temperatures below freezing, President Volodymyr Zelensky is rallying to keep up the country's morale. I wish everyone good health. I would like to thank our air defence forces, our energy workers and our people. The air defence shot down most of the missiles. The energy workers have begun restoring power supplies and our people never give up. Glory to Ukraine. But the impacts here are severe. The city of Odessa has no running water at all. Homes have been destroyed in the east and at least four people are dead, including a man killed in a strike on a factory here in the city of Krivy Re, where, like much of the country, there are widespread blackouts. Well, I'm in central Krivy Re, and it's not even 5pm yet, but the entire city is pitch black. I can see people at a pizza restaurant across the road uh, eating dinner by candlelight. It's bitterly cold here. The temperature's been as low as minus eight degrees today. So these Russian attacks are really hitting Ukrainians where it hurts. According to Russia, the latest airstrikes were an act of revenge. Hours earlier, explosions were reported at two airbases inside Russia, hundreds of kilometres from Ukraine. Russia's defence ministry blames Ukrainian drones for those attacks, which killed three Russian military personnel. If that's true, it means the war started by Russian President Vladimir Putin is moving deep inside his country. He didn't comment on the attacks. Instead, he was shown on Russian state TV, driving into the Russian annexed territory of Crimea, across a bridge that's been under repair after it was bombed in October. Back in Ukraine, in the city of Krivy Re, the generators are running at a supermarket where we find people crowding to stock up on water and food and remaining optimistic. I have no electricity, no water, uh, no lights. In general, I can say that the situation is pretty bad, but uh, I guess it's worse to live like that. Then we can become free of uh, all this uh, pressure uh, from Russia. So now we can live like that. We will do our things even without light. It's okay. So far, Russia's mission to break the will of the Ukrainian people appears to be failing. This is Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop reporting for AM in Krivy Ree. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In 2021, Brittany Higgins became known across Australia after she publicly alleged she'd been raped in an office at Parliament House. The man she accused, Bruce Learman, has always maintained his innocence. Today, criminologist Dr Rachel Bergen on why the focus has shifted to how our legal system is working now the charges have been dropped. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.